0: Good morning. Good morning. So, Robbie, thank you for the story. <laughs> I wasn't sure where it was going. <laughs> but it, it, and, and I'll get to yeah. my talk in a minute. But it reminded me of, I mean, these healing stories, sort of healing stories. There was this guy in Yemen, this Jewish mystic in Yemen in the Middle Ages, who claimed he was the Messiah. And the Jews of Yemen... They didn't know. How do you know if he's the Messiah or not the Messiah? So they wrote to the most famous Jewish philosopher in, of their time, Moses Maimonides, who lived in Egypt. And they said, how do we tell? And Maimonides wrote back and said, ask him to do a miracle that no one else can do, and if he does it, then he's the Messiah. So they challenged him, they said, you know, do something no one else could do. So he said, okay, pick a day, and I'm gonna cut off my head, and then I'm gonna put it back on, and you'll see that I'm the Messiah. And so they picked a day, and he, and he actually did it. H- half of it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why you never know what's going to work, and you have to do the same yeah. So, but Easter's coming, so don't worry. <laughs> Somebody's Messiah is around the corner. So the topic, oh, I forgot, what is it called? <laughs> the topic is called, what can we make of What is it? That live is evil evil spelled backwards. Yeah. What can we make of the fact that live is evil spelled backwards? Nothing. (laughs) It's just it's just a trite little thing that someone's going to put in Twitter. You know, it's those little things that oh look, live is evil spelled backwards. Oh my God, that's got to mean something. It's just nothing. It doesn't mean anything. But I'm going to make it mean something because I put it in the title and I sent it to Jill and she put it in the newsletter and so now we're stuck with it. So it's got to mean something. So what I'm going to make of it is that evil is an intrinsic part of being alive. You can't escape it. So what we're going to do, and and this came out of a talkback session we had last time I was here. Someone raised the issue of evil and I thought, you know, we should look at some of these big issues. We talked about God, you know, how, how we think about God last time, and we explored that. So this is really a talk about how we might think about evil. I'm going to lay it out with my opinion, and then in the talkback session, you know, you can, you can share your own thoughts on this. But what I want to do is I want to look at the following questions. What is evil? Where is evil? Why is evil? And how do we deal with evil? the evil of others, but more importantly, I'm interested in how do we deal with our own capacity for for evil, and I'm gonna define all these things as we go along. So, what is it? I know from things I've heard here before that some of you think, well, evil is simply the absence of good. But then we have to define good, and we end up saying, well, good is the absence of evil. So then I'm just dizzy, and we get nowhere. (coughs) So I don't want to go. I'm going to give a definition. Now, you can certainly disagree with my definition, but I'm just going to give one, put one out there so we can discuss something. So here's the definition I'm going to use at the moment. Evil is intentionally causing unnecessary harm. Now, that's Hopefully, my definition takes away somebody's snarky comment. Well, what about a doctor who, you know, Jim had to go. He had to have the pacemaker put in. <clears throat> I guess, and I'm hoping it wasn't that painful because I may be on my way to one too. And I read, I read in the internet, which is of course my go-to place for all things, <laughs> all things true, that they only use a, they only use a topical anesthesia? Yeah, I am not doing that. <laughs> right. They have to knock me out completely, otherwise I'm not getting one. You'll be knocked out. I'll be knocked thank you. Even if you're lying, I appreciate that. <laughs> but someone's going to say, well, you know, they had to hurt Jim in order to do something you know, to improve his life. So that's why I'm saying it's, uh, an in, evil is intentionally causing unnecessary harm. They had to hurt him, but it was necessary in order to do some greater good. So the intentional causing of unnecessary harm to another person, another being, not just a person, another being. That's my definition of evil. So that's what it is. Where do you find it? So I think evil is only in people. You can look at nature, and I don't think you're going to find evil. I don't watch nature shows because they scare the crap out of me. Because they're so violent, but they're not evil. When you look at the, the tornado that just went through Texas, and I mean, it wasn't a lot of people, but one person killed is one too many as far as I'm concerned. But was it 11 people were killed in, in the last tornado, or go to Turkey and 40 plus thousand people were killed in, in those earthquakes, that's a tragedy, that's a horror specifically to the people and their extended family, but to the country of Turkey and, and all of that, all the people associated with, those, with that death and destruction, that's, that's a tragedy to them. But it's not evil, because nature didn't intend to do this harm. It was a necessary, the earthquake was necessary. The earth you know, has tectonic plates and they have to move. If they don't move, the earth can't function. So the plates have to shift. When they shift, things, you know, we get quakes. And if the quakes are big enough and you're built on those fault lines, things are going to shake. And if they shake violently enough, they're going to collapse. That's not evil. That's a tragedy. But it's not evil. What's evil is that they, in Turkey, they had building codes that were designed to withstand that level of quake but Erdogan, the leader of Turkey, had friends in the building business, and he let them skirt the building codes. I mean, he got money for it, but he, you know, he, he got kickbacks. He let them skirt the building codes, and their buildings collapsed. The buildings that were built to code did not. The buildings did not collapse. The buildings that were not built to code did collapse. That is evil. I've used this example before. In 1992, I lived through Hurricane Andrew in Miami, Florida. That wasn't evil. What was evil is after the hurricane, fake contractors came in. People hired them to fix their homes. They took their money, and they disappeared. That's evil. Companies were selling ice that was, you could before the hurricane, you could buy for $0.25, cents, $0.50 cents a bag at a gas station. They were selling bags of ice because we had no electricity for weeks. They were selling bags of ice for $20 a bag. That's evil. It's also capitalism. But I don't want to get into a... Con- you know, That's another topic. But so, so I'm saying, where is evil? Evil is in the mind of people and in their actions. Only people are evil. Now you can accept that or reject that but that's that's my premise. Evil exists in the minds of people. Evil also exists in God. Because people invent God. And it's interesting to me who's you know a, I don't know if I'm obsessed with the Bible but I'm obsessed with the Bible. <laughs> so especially the Hebrew Bible. So you can look in the book of Genesis and you find these two there's lots of places where God is evil in the Bible. But the Bible is a human document mostly written by men, but there's, a, he's deceased now, but um, Harold Bloom, a great Bible and, and literature scholar from Yale, has this whole theory in a book called The Book of Jay. If anyone's curious, it's a really interesting book to read. Jay is the author of the book of those stories in the Bible where God is called, um, well, in the English they call God Lord, but it's the, it's the God that's the four-letter, unpronounceable name, Y-H-V-H, or in German, J-H-V-H, so it's Jehovah, so they call him J, the J-writer. Uh, Harold Bloom's theory is that J was a woman, and in fact, a, a whole group of women, who lived in King David's court, and they were a literary circle of, of women who wrote these stories. And and he makes this case, it's a, it's bigger than what I'm going to say, but one of the... one of the ways he tries to prove his case, is that the men in the J stories are all jerks. (laughs) And so he says these were women writing about men they knew and making fun of them, and they had no intention, because no one knew there was a Bible, right? They weren't writing a Bible. They were writing funny stories for one another that eventually someone said, these are holy stories about God. And so they made a Bible. But uh, in those stories, you you get two stories about God's evil. One is the flood, where God looks at the world and says, this world sucks, I'm going to drown everything. Not just people, I'm going to drown everything and start over again with an alcoholic and his family and a couple of animals <laughs> that he can get on this boat. I mean, it's a stupid story, but it's a, fa- it's a you know, a hot, like the Irish stories. It's, it's just a story. A, it's a story and it's got, you know, all this stuff. in it. And that God is evil, right? It's, it's, it's an intentional and uh, it's, it's an intentional act that is unnecessarily, you know, it's doing evil, doing harm unnecessarily. If this God is the creator of the universe and he looks out and he says, boy, this world is terrible, wait a second, now it's nice. You know, he could have done that, but he didn't and it's a he, right, because these women are making fun of all these men including the God. So. He could have done that, doesn't do that, so it's toxic masculinity on a cosmic <laughs> scale. So that's one, you know, that's one way of looking at the evil of God. Then you get the, the story of God and, and Sodom, where God's going to destroy Sodom, which many pastors will tell you God's destroying Sodom because Sodom is a hotbed of sodomy, right? of of homosexuality, and that's why God's destroying them, and that's why homosexuality is evil. But that's not what the text actually says. The sin of Sodom is inhospitality. Christians take it in another direction, but the Jewish approach is, the problem with Sodom is they're not friendly. So God says, you have to be friendly, you're not friendly, I'm gonna destroy you. But then, in the argument with Abraham and God over the destruction of Sodom, Abraham, unlike Noah, Right? God says to Noah, I'm going to destroy the whole world, except for you and your family. And Noah says, thanks. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> lucky me. You got anything to drink, right? So when, when God says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom, Abraham says, anyone know? Oh, 50 people. Yeah, right? Abraham has this great line. He says, you can't do that. Shouldn't the judge of all the world act justly? Now, in the context of their time, God's absolute power, right? So, might makes right in that world. And God is the absolute might, so whatever God wants to do is absolute right. It's, was it Nixon or Trump who said, if the president does it, it can't be wrong? That was Nixon, right? So, so that was the worldview of God in, in Genesis. Abraham says, no, that's ridiculous. There's justice. And then there's God. And you have to follow justice. And God doesn't never heard of this in the story. So basically, God says, What's justice? And Abraham says, Look, if there's 50 decent people in town, you can't destroy it. And it's innocent people, you can't destroy it. And then God says, Okay. And then Abraham, Abraham, you can sort of read between the lines. Abraham is saying, Really? I won that one? (laughs) Uh, Let's see how far I can go. What about about 45? (laughs) What about 40? What about 30? And he bargains it down to 10. And God goes, Okay, 10. He goes, wow, I win. And he wins because if you ask, because Abraham thinks to himself, I've got family there. I've got Lot, Lot which is his nephew, Lot's wife, Lot's kids, their um, um, spouses, and their um, fiancés. It comes out to ten. So Abraham says, okay, I got my ten righteous. Turns out they're not, and the place gets destroyed anyway. But that was because he didn't know his family but in the in the first in the Noah story God just destroys everything and that's you know evil but in the second one God learns a little bit it's, it's sort of an evolved story but God doesn't learn from God God from from God's own being God learns from a human who says no you can't intentionally destroy the good along with the evil so there is some kind of progress but it all comes from the storyteller who's a person and according to Harold Bloom, a woman. But we won't go in that. That's a whole other discussion. <laughs> but the Bible's written by people. Evil is something that people have. Evil is something that people have to wrestle with. So where's evil? Evil is in the minds of people. Okay. Why is evil? Why does evil exist? So I'm going to stick with the psychological, that evil is in the minds of people. We could take a Taoist approach Take us in a different direction, yin and yang, right? And then you could look at live one way, evil the other way, because it's all part of the same non-dualistic thing. I could, I could buy that too. But I'm just going to stick with the psychological approach and go to um, Albert Einstein. And I'm going to read you, which is why I have notes today. Usually I just wing it. No. <laughs> but I have, I have notes because I have to read you quote. So this is what Albert Einstein wrote about people. He says, a human being is a part of a whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. We experience ourselves, our thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, from each other, from nature, from the whole, we experience ourselves, our thoughts and our feelings, as something separated from the rest, which is a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. All right. so we are born with this optical delusion. Now, he, he, when he says optical delusion, what he's referring to is the fact that our eyes are situated in our head in such a way that we have depth perception and when I look out here, you look separate from me, right? The piano and I are not the same thing. At least visually, it seems there, there's spatial difference. But it's a delusion, which physics knows, right? Because it's all just one, you know, con- constant wave of, of subatomic particles. If we looked at this from from a quantum mechanics point of view, it's all just one thing. But we look at it from a human perspective, I just see difference. So he's saying, Einstein, that this is an optical delusion, which is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for only a few people who are closest to us. So our tribe, our family, our tribe, our religion, our race, whatever it is. Our task, Einstein says, our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So that, that's, there's one less sentence, but let me hold it for a second. So even though we're born with this optical delusion, we can overcome it. And then we're going to talk about how in a sec. We can overcome it. That's our task is to overcome this delusion and see reality as it truly is. Now, he doesn't know quantum mechanics yet, but to see reality as it truly is, that it's all part of this whole that we call universe. You can call it Tao, you can call it Brahman, you can call it God, you can call it whatever you want. He's calling it universe. We have to overcome this delusion by widening, and this is how he says you do it, by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature. Then he ends by saying, nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such achievement is in itself a part of the liberation and a foundation for inner security. So you can't, there's a saying in the Talmud, the Anthology of Rabbinic Teachings, that it's not your job to complete the task, but neither are you free from trying, from working on it. So he's saying the same thing. You're never gonna com- pull this off completely, but striving for it is, is your job. So I'm, I'm hearing the little baby in the back. So my, my seven-year-old grandson doesn't do this anymore, but when he was much younger, <clears throat> he would love to go to the big tree in front of our house and he'd pull at the bark and pull it off. And I would explain to him that this is a, you know, this is sister tree, or brother tree, or cousin tree, whatever you want. This is a living being, and it's part of our environment, and you're needlessly causing the tree harm by doing that. And he got that, intuitively. He got that, he was a little baby. He got that, and he doesn't do that anymore. He now goes and he hugs the tree, and he looks for bugs, and and he's into bugs, but he doesn't kill the bugs, right? He lets me hire the the exterminator to do that for him. He doesn't kill the bugs. He just, he's mar- he just marvels at them, and he doesn't pull the bark off the tree anymore. He just recognized, when somebody pointed it out to him, he recognized this interdependent, this is from what we read just a few moments ago, this interdependent web of life to which we all belong, right, in the principles of Unitarianism. So it's not that you have to go, oh, God, what does that mean? How do I-? We get it in- intuitively. You know that at least that principle, you know it's true. Because as soon as you hear it, even if you hear it as he's seven, but he heard this when he was four, maybe, you know, when, as soon as you hear it, even if you hear it as a little tiny kid, you get it. Because it's true. <clears throat> That's what we have to strive to do, not just with little kids, but with ourselves. To recognize the truth of that reality. So, how do you do it? So I want to talk about how do you deal with with other people who are doing this unnecessary, causing this unnecessary harm, intentionally causing this unnecessary harm. But I'm going to put that off till the talk back. So we can focus on what do we do with our own? How do we strive to overcome the optical delusion? How do we strive to broaden our uh, circle of compassion? So I came up with five things that you can do, because I've already done them, I'm perfect. But five things that we can do. Um, and I, I, didn't, I sort of took them from a guy named Timothy Snyder. Um, I don't know if, if you know who he is. He's a professor somewhere uh, who writes about tyranny. He's got this marvelous book. It's a book you can read in an hour and a half. It's a little tiny book called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the Twentieth Century. Yale. It, who said yeah? He's from Yale. Yale, okay, so you read the book? Yes. It's a great book. You can get it on audio, and I think they're giving, on Audible, I mean. I think they're giving it away for free on Audible. He's got a new version. 20 Lessons, On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the Twentieth Century and the new version plus 20 more lessons for the 21st century and, and I think it's free. I, I downloaded it. I've only listened again to the first half, uh, but it's a brilliant little book. It fits in your back pocket or your shirt pocket or your purse certainly, but anyway, so I went through it just you know to prepare for this, this little talk and I just pulled five things out from the original book, um, four from the original book and then one I added on my own. Um, but though this is my language, not his. I'm just plugging the book because I really, I'm thinking about buying hundreds and giving them out. Um, I won't because I can't afford it, but <laughs> I'm thinking about it. Anyway, number one, guard your speech. Watch, the, watch out for the words you use. Is your language widening your circle of compassion or shutting it down? My language, I am very aware of my language as my use of words, as a way of, of othering people. Right? I, I really I, Yesterday, I had this passionate talk with my son, he's a professor at MTSU, and both of us, but I'm not criticizing him, I'm just aware of my own thing. Um, I otherwise, right, I hate MAGA people, (laughs) right? I'm just, there's something intrinsically evil about MAGA people. Now, I don't know, I I mean, that's just a projection of my own, but I really, they scare the crap out of me. I, you know, I have all this language around them, I have all this language around uh, those who who are, just like Hill said earlier, about the, the people who are passing the anti-trans, the anti-LGBTQIAI-plus uh, stuff, all that—I I just my language is othering. Now, I don't want to be Pollyannish. I don't want to say, "Oh, it's all fine, and we should let them do what they want." That's not what I'm saying. But I'm not widening my circle of compassion for these people. I am othering. So. The first thing I'm suggesting we do, and I need to do this, right, is watch my language so that I can still make my points without demonizing the other person. I'm not sure how, but I know it's something I need to work on. That's number one. Number two, this is from uh, Jeremy Snyder. Um, Jeremy Timothy Snyder. Make eye contact with people. He says, people don't make eye contact anymore. Um, I, I live on Church Street, and I, I walk my dog constantly around the neighborhood. And there are people in, in the neighborhood who are, I don't know. I don't know if they're dangerous, but they make me nervous. And I know I tend, not, I tend to avoid them. But I'm making a conscious effort to make eye contact, to even say something to them. Um, and not, get away from me, I'm gonna call the cops. Not that, right? <laughs> no, something, something more pleasant than that. Um, it, you know, I don't wanna make it sound too simplistic because sometimes you make eye contact and that triggers other people, and so you gotta be mindful. But not to avoid people is basically, so he says make eye contact, talk with people. Point three, he says, travel. If you can't get to other countries, at least get to other parts of the neighborhood, right? To, to mingle with people you wouldn't normally mingle with. Now, for me, that's almost everybody that I live around, right? Most of my neighbors disagree with everything that I think is true. I've got a little, you know, you see those things in people's houses, in front of people's houses. Um, in this house, we believe, you know, Jesus is Lord and all that kind of stuff. So I made one of those too, right? And, and, it's based on my, my book on perennial wisdom. You know, in this in this home, I think it says, I'm not exactly sure of the wording, but you know, we affirm, because I don't like the word believe, but we affirm uh, that everything is a manifesting of, of non-dual reality and that you can awaken to this. And you know, whatever whatever it is. It's the it's the four points of, of perennial wisdom that I write about in, in my books. And so I made a little poster. And you know, no one's torn it up. Uh, the fact that I put it, you know, behind a giant bush where no one can see it, maybe that's why, but, you know, so that's out there. Um, but, but you have to paint it on a palette for it to be legitimate. <laughs> oh, that's what I have to do. <laughs> so, so, but, so, so my neighbors think differently than I do, but, you know, I do reach out and we do have conversations, just not about anything other than our dogs. But, still, we, we have, we have connections. So that's what he's saying, you have to go out and, and make connections with people who are unlike you. Number four, he says, support causes and institutions that widen your circle of compassion. So you all probably do that in one way or another, but one of the things he talks about is, because uh, he's in favor of this and I do this too, uh, newspapers, real newspapers, not Breitbart. Um, but identify newspapers, Just and I don't know, My wife says this is true, and that's why we buy, we support the Daily News Journal. But local newspapers here. But I, you know, I subscribe to the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, you know, whatever newspapers you think are important, even if it's just digitally, uh, because that's the only thing you can do, because they don't deliver the Washington Post here. But to support them, they need to stay in business, and so it's part of our charity work. Um, to support those institutions, or to support—I mean, literacy is my thing, so we support a lot of liter- literacy programs, um, both local ones and and other ones. Does that, does that make sense? I don't know if I'm making, makes sense I don't want to belabor these things. And then the fifth thing—I um, forget how he puts it—but the way I wrote it down was: cultivate an inner spiritual life, so that you have some place to take refuge when the other four things don't work. <laughs> That's not what he said. But, but somewhere to, to find inner strength, inner, um, yeah, I guess, inner refuge. And the way I wanna explain this one in the couple of minutes I have left is to go back to the Bible again. One of my favorite lines in the Bible is Genesis chapter 12, verse one, and then skip verse 2 and go to verse 3. Because uh, the, the points are in verse 1 and, and verse 3. So we won't. We'll skip verse 2. So Genesis 12:1, uh, God calls to Abraham and Sarah. And gives them. A, he calls. Or, you know, God calls them to a deep spiritual practice. Called lech lecha. L-E-C-H. Second word, L-E-C-H-A. Lach means to walk. Lacha means to yourself. Now, in your standard English Bible, it sounds, they make it an external journey. And, and they'll translate it, walk for your own sake, or, yeah, that's usually what they say. And, and, it, and then it goes on to say, walk for your own sake, uh, or, or, or leave for your own sake, for your own benefit, uh, your... country, your kinfolk, your parents' house, and go to a place that I, the God, will show you. But the Hebrew is way more interesting. The Hebrew says, Lech Lecha, walk into yourself, and free yourself from the conditioning. This is the implication. To walk to your true self is to free yourself from the conditioning of your nation, your culture, your parental biases, And then I would expand it to to all the other conditioning that you get in your life. So your your ethnicity, your race, your gender, your sexuality, all the things that, all the labels and things that, the, the cultural constructs that are used to define you as you. To strip those away, in Christianity it's called the apophatic spiritual path where everything is just dropped. In Hinduism it's called neti neti, not this, not that. Everything is stripped away until you get to the, Bottom where you're nothing, which would be the true reality without labels. Right? So, so whether you call it again God, Brahman, whatever, whatever you want to call it, you get to that ultimate reality that is beyond language, beyond labeling, but is your true self and the true self of everything else. Is that you follow that idea? Because there's just one of it. Uh, the Bible calls it. Uh, ehia, the eyeing of the universe, the absolute subjectivity of the universe that manifests as everything else. So you can't say, uh, even, even in, in Hinduism when we say tat tvam asi, you are that, there's still a you. Eventually you get to the point where it's just all you can say is that. But even more, you get to the point where all you can say is I. But not the egoic I, just the divine I. So, what lechlaha as a spiritual practice is, it's a constant taking away of, no, I'm not that. I'm not Rami, I'm not Jewish, I'm not white, I'm not male, I'm not American, I'm not liberal, I'm not, until all those things that would be on a, hello, my name is, and all my things, get them all gone. And what's left is just that divine reality that is, everything that exists. And then, that's all verse one in in Genesis 12. And then verse three in Genesis 12 tells you why. And the answer is, why do I want to strip away all these things? Because when I'm free from all the conditioning, it says, then I can be a blessing to all the families of the world, all the families of the earth. When I no longer have any biases, to go back to Einstein, when I no longer have the delusion that I am X, Y, or Z, <clears throat> that imprisons me and restricts me uh, uh, to my personal desires and affections for a few persons nearest to me, when I've stripped that all the way, then I've widened my circle to embrace everything and all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Or as, Levit- as uh, Genesis 12.3 says, I'm a blessing to all the families of the earth. Because I am all the families of the earth. Because we're all the whole thing, if that, if that makes sense. That's the way you deal with evil, by erasing the self that manifests it. Not, Einstein says, not something that you can achieve. He says, says, nobody's able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such achievement is in itself a part of a liberation and a foundation for inner security. And it's something I think that's worth a lifetime of effort, uh, and, and I would say is something we need now more than ever. So I'm gonna stop there, we'll come back, and we can talk about what to do with everyone else's evil <laughs> uh, in the next, in the talk back.